Part 6, Service Without Sacrifice, A Humanitarian Manifesto. We are the teachers, the healers, the activists, the caregivers, the healthcare professionals, the first responders, the public servants, the government workers, the clergy, the journalists, the International Aid and Development Corps, and all who work to alleviate other people's pain and suffering and to make the world better. We are humanitarians. Every day we serve the world's most vulnerable people, often under challenging and dire circumstances. Through our service, we're exposed to traumatic events and danger, regularly work long hours, experience high stress and high threat situations, and in some cases, frequent, often back-to-back -back deployments in global fields. In spite of all of this, we show up day after day, ready to serve. For generations, we have been conditioned to believe that by choosing a career in service of others, we agree to sacrifice our time, our relationships, our health and well-being, our humanity. We've been taught that the only way through the hardships, traumas and exhaustion is to suck it up, shove it down, numb the pain, be grateful that your life isn't as bad as theirs, move on, dismiss the desire for a better way. And we've been taught that to do anything different to set boundaries, to prioritize self-care, to be less than perfect is selfish, unprofessional. In addition to what happens in our places of work, we too, like the people we serve, have navigated the challenges of a global pandemic. We too endure the traumas of social and racial inequities, subtle acts of exclusion and war. We too care for loved ones, friends, and family members. We too manage chronic health conditions, feel pain, experience loneliness, and grieve our losses. We too are human. And yet, the organizations through which we serve often choose not to see our humanity. They choose not to acknowledge our trauma. They choose not to help us heal our pain. They choose not to respect or support our boundaries. They choose to turn a blind eye to our sacrifices of time, relationships, health, and well-being. They choose to celebrate perfectionism and to define resilience as the ability to meet organizational metrics. They choose to dismiss our desire for a better way. These choices made by those who should be protecting us have left us Humanitarians across mission-driven fields, languishing, exhausted, stressed out, burned out, traumatized, morally injured, depressed, and anxious. They've left us feeling unseen, disrespected, misunderstood, and undervalued. They've left us questioning whether we're tough enough, resilient enough, professional enough, good enough. They've left us feeling ashamed and selfish in our desire to want more, to want better. They've left us feeling invisible and alone, bearing our pain and shame in silence. They've left us without a sense of agency or belief in our ability to make choices that serve us, even as we serve others. Carrying the weight of the pain, hardships, and traumas, we continue to serve. We do so because the world needs people like us to show up, day after day, 
to do work that most people cannot fathom. We choose to serve because of a deeply ingrained desire to give back. We choose to serve because doing so gives us a sense of purpose and connection to something bigger than ourselves in a world where so many feel disconnected and isolated. We choose to serve because caring for others is inherent to who we are, and to do anything different would leave us feeling unfulfilled and restless. In addition to our choice to serve, using our newfound gifts of self-awareness and self-compassion, we now choose to remember that at the heart of the word humanitarian is human. We now choose to move forward with eyes wide open, secure in the knowledge that serving others does not require sacrificing ourselves. We now choose to believe that we deserve more, we deserve better, and we deserve to have our humanity acknowledged and protected. And while we'll choose to continue doing this work that lends our lives purpose and which we love, we will no longer do so by sacrificing our time, health, well-being, relationships, or our humanity in the process. We choose to serve without sacrificing ourselves. To manifest this new choice, we commit to changing the status quo, first as individuals, and then by holding our leaders and organizations accountable for doing the same. As individuals, we commit to taking radical responsibility, embodying mindful awareness, redefining self-care, setting clear boundaries, becoming radically human leaders. As leaders and organizations, we commit to providing a holistic, human-centered duty of care to normalize and address occupational mental health challenges and traumas, evolve from metrics-driven cultures into human-centered ones, support rest and recovery, foster shared purpose and commitment. Using this framework, we'll work together to rewrite the long-standing narrative of service before self and shift our collective expectations about what it means to be of service. We'll create awareness and compassion around our stories in order to heal them and move forward feeling happier and healthier so we can continue showing up to do the important work this world needs us to do now more than ever. This is our commitment to ourselves and to the people we serve. I wrote this manifesto to, first of all, remind each of us that we have to make the choice to prioritize our own health and well-being. Second, to put mission-driven sectors on notice that they have to do more, to do better, to address the effect of occupational traumas and the resulting mental health challenges inherent in humanitarian work. And to advocate for a duty of care that makes the mental health and well-being of staff a cornerstone of all policies, processes, and procedures that organizations put into place to meet their mission. So this leaves us with the question of how. This is what my guest Steve Wiley and I talk about on part six of Service Without Sacrifice through our exploration of what I call the manifesto. Steve is an ICF certified executive coach and president of SEEK LLC. He founded SEEK with the mission to help organizations redefine and pursue wellness, or as Steve likes to say, rid the world of zombies in the workforce. 
He's also been one of the greatest champions of my work and a mentor and friend over the past few years. Unlike parts one through five of my book, Tell Me My Story, which focus on different parts of the story healing cycle, part six is a call to action for individuals and organizations to work together to change the status quo. In our conversation, Steve and I explore what it takes to create happy, healthy workplaces and the natural tension that exists in organizations between achieving results and fostering relationships. We talk about the responsibilities we have as individuals, as well as the responsibility organizations have to provide a holistic, human-centered duty of care to their staff. This was a fascinating conversation filled with a lot of practical experience and our thoughts on how we begin to operationalize our values to create human-centered workplaces where head, heart, and metrics work together to the benefit of the people we serve and to the people who serve. I'm Dimple Dabalia, and this is part six of a story about service without sacrifice. Steve, thank you so much for being here today to talk about part six of my new book, Tell Me My Story, Challenging the Narrative of Service Before Self. Today, we are actually jumping into the manifesto of service without self-sacrifice. And this is honestly, I think, one of my favorite parts of the book because it feels so action-oriented. <laughs> And for the last five weeks, I've been talking with different guests about the different elements of healing our stories and kind of the steps of the story healing cycle that move us towards action. And I really genuinely believe that each of us as individuals has a role to play in preserving our own health and well-being. But I feel really strongly about the responsibility of organizations to provide a holistic, human-centered duty of care for their staff. And so I'm really excited to talk to you about that today, especially because I know that the work that I do here at Roots in the Clouds and the work that you and your team at SEEK are doing is ultimately about creating happier and healthier workplace cultures. And so with this kind of context um, set, and all of this in mind, um, I'm just really curious what came up for you, you know, as you move through the book, but especially through part six, when you got to the manifesto and um, some of the recommendations that were there. Oh, well, first of all, Dimple, thank you for having me. It's an absolute honor and so enjoyed reading your book. Uh, and thank you for your vulnerability and sharing your story. It's powerful. Okay. Um, and it gave me a whole new perspective, especially from the perspective of the humanitarian sector and service-oriented organizations, which we aspire to be uh, in a different way. But diving into part six, what I thought was really cool that jumped out at me is that you gave a manifesto from two perspectives, mm. starting with the individual. And that I can so relate to that. You know, I wrote a book on healthy life balance and I, and I remember just there was a time in my life where I felt like I, I was just a, a victim. It was, you know, everything was occurring and I just couldn't take on more. And eventually I said, you know what? I'm the only person present here and I need to take control for myself. Mm -hmm. And so you start with the self, but we don't let organizations off the hook. Right. And it's the same philosophy that we bring at Seek. I love that you kind of have this two-part manifesto. So you're giving guidance for individuals to take control, but then you're saying organizations have a role to play. Don't just, don't just shirk responsibility, that you too can be involved in creating essentially a platform by which this is possible, for, by which we can help 
help others help themselves, especially those who are serving in support of others. So love the perspective, happy to dive into any aspect of it. It certainly resonated with me and my own personal journey. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I, you know, I really admire the work that you all do at Seek. And so it feels really good to hear that this resonated. I think it it can never be one or the other. Like, I think a lot of times organizations, especially post-pandemic, I'm seeing a lot of organizations that are putting, creating like these, you know, one day programs, or we're going to give you an extra day off or or things like that. But a lot of it still, which number one, I think these one and done things don't work. It has to be a full integration into culture, right? Into shifting the culture. But I think also a lot of times these things end up falling back on the individual. And so the organization is kind of like, okay, well, we've provided you with mindfulness programs or we've provided you with access to these things. You know, so we've done our part now, that's it. But to me, if it's not being built into like the workday in some way, um, if it hasn't been built into messaging, into policies, makes it a lot more challenging, right? As individuals to then be like, oh, well, okay, I'm going to take, you know, this 30 minute mindfulness thing, even though I've got all these things on my to-do list and I've got deadlines and this and that. And so, sorry, this is my long way of asking, (laughs) you know, in the work that you do, I'm curious about, you know, what kind of pushback you sometimes get from organizations about the idea of it's not easy. How do we, we are meant to go to work to work. So how do we start integrating some of these things um, in a way that, you know, organizations won't necessarily be like, uh, no, this is not happening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you do a really good job in the book conveying that taking care of people is good business. We talk a lot in the work that we do in culture with organizations, and Adam Grant speaks to this. There's one of the primary tensions in organizations is this tension between results and relationships. Yeah. And I think of that in terms, and he says, if you overemphasize results to the neglect of people, you just burn them out. They're just resources. We're just going to use them to, to get to the results we want. You're going to have a toxic work culture. But if you overemphasize people or relationship to the neglect of results, most businesses have a reason to be in business, they have to have some results, then you may have a culture of mediocrity. And so I think giving organizations and leaders that language and that understanding that this is a tension to manage, and it's okay to expect results. However, if you can instill some routines and some rituals and some operating norms that empower individuals to care for themselves, empower individuals, as you say, to share their stories, to to be okay, not being okay. That is very good and helpful to achieve results in the long run. If you're just going to burn people out, that won't happen. Um, And we can talk about this. I think you're, you're spot on in terms of No, a one-time training doesn't fix the problem or just saying, oh, we're going to have a mindfulness class. 
but giving the platform to have the conversations to continually evolve. And happy to talk. I mean, we we do what we call intentional culture plans. You see, I wore my culture sweatshirt. <laughs> and really, we're about how do you build values, values such as caring for people, recognizing the humanity, recognizing people as your greatest asset. Well, how do you build that into daily, weekly, monthly, yearly routines and operating norms that give a platform while at the same time giving the individual agency over their own well-being? Happy to dive into examples of that and Hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and I love this idea of the culture plan, right? One of the things I talk about in the book is, you know, when we talk about this idea of metrics-driven cultures versus human-centered cultures, right? Mm. Human-centered cultures encompass both of what you were just talking about, that, and, and they help to kind of bridge the gap of that tension between results and relationships. And the idea is, right, that in our decision-making, in our policy-making, health and well-being of our staff becomes kind of a pillar. So a lot of times, uh, at least in my previous organization, what I found was that so many of our decisions were driven solely by um, the metrics that we needed to achieve. And so, you know, workloads, that's how workloads were determined. That's how schedules are determined, like all these things without considering how this impacts the human that's actually doing the work. And I really think a lot of this comes out of, we've been conditioned this way for such a long time. You know, we have so much good that came out of the industrial revolution in terms of Mm. creating efficiencies and things like that. But I think that the problem is that the industrial revolution was so particular to like factory work and and things that are repetitive and things like that. I think in a lot of these other settings where, you know, we really have to focus on, on how we're dealing with people, like our customers or our clients, or where we have to use our, you know, like really use a lot of critical thinking and things like that. Just building inefficiencies doesn't work. And, and honestly, I think that it's resulted in kind of a lack of humanity in the workplace where we don't, like you said, you know, we don't see each other as, as humans necessarily. And, and even the term human resources, right? Like we think about people as resources. And so part of this is uh, really looking at that impact of the, you know, like how we can use social connection in the workplace and, and be very intentional about it and targeted about it but how that social connection can lead to trust and psychological safety. And and to me, creating that is what actually, when we talk about like the resilience of an organization, if you have that level of trust and that feeling where your staff feels empowered, they feel like they can speak, they can speak up when something doesn't feel right and know that their opinions matter, that they matter, then when we encounter something like a pandemic, for example, we're not just in reaction mode. We've already got a really strong foundation with each other to to work our way through it. 
No, I think you're hitting on the key word and what we deal with in cultures everywhere is this notion of trust. Stepping back, you talk about the industrial revolution. I think with knowledge workers today, one of the biggest challenges is the fact that we're not punching a clock. Mm -hmm. We're not just, all right, work is done. Now I can move. Now we have to be far more disciplined and intentional in that. And a lot of times individuals need to set boundaries. You speak to boundaries in your book. But organizations need to be able to have those discussions and provide the psychological safety to have discussions and, and afford people the opportunity to set boundaries within reasonable constraints of job and life circumstances. I talk about that in my own book on the topic of balance. We foundationally believe that Fear and blame destroy cultures. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so when it comes to the things that you're talking about in building trust, teaching leaders what vulnerability actually is, what it looks like, teaching leaders to be receptive to feedback and to be vulnerable. And, and vulnerability, I mean, Brene Brown's done so much research on this topic. It doesn't mean vulnerability without boundaries is not vulnerability. Everybody you <laughs> work with will have different levels of what vulnerability looks like. But for leaders to be able to be open, to be receptive to feedback, to what I call willing to expose the left in the midst of their colleagues. This is a metaphor for me teaching kids how to shoot a basketball with their left hand. It's being willing to acknowledge some, some perceived weakness or not being okay demonstrating that from leadership is incredibly helpful yeah and then i think the bigger point that we're getting at like how do you do this in a very intentional way which gets to some of the recommendations that you have in the book some of the things we do with culture and organizations about creating some operating structure that allows for that And I think that, like, because I think that that's actually the thing that often gets in the way, right? Like, when we talk about vulnerability with leaders, I think there are a lot of misconceptions. And not just with leaders, but, you know, like, but creating the space for humanity in, in the workplace. Because um, I've been saying this a lot lately, that being human is messy, serving humans is even messier. <laughs> Uh, but there's this, we move through life believing often that there has to be this bifurcated existence and, you know, that we're going to compartmentalize and we're going to, when we're at work, we're just going to focus on work. But we know that as whole human beings, it's not like a sustainable way of existing in the world. And so when we think about a lot of the mental health things that we've seen issues coming up, um, especially throughout the pandemic and post-pandemic. I mean, really before the pandemic too. And then we saw some of the resulting, um, you know, the great resignation. I don't like the term quiet quitting because <laughs> quiet quitting they're saying is, you know, where you're doing the kind of minimal work that you need to do, which to me is like, if you're doing the the baseline of what you're supposed to be doing, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. But we have this expectation that people should be going above and beyond at all times. 
So that's the other part of this is the language that we use in our day to day and how we're couching things. I know that you you talk a lot about balance and I talk a lot about work-life harmony because for me, balance is is a tough word because I think that my experience with it has been that it often sets us up to feel like we're failing because things aren't always going to be balanced, right? One At some point, work is going to be more important. At some point, things in our personal life are going to be more important. So how do we bring all those things together in a way that they can work in harmony and that we can kind of more easily navigate our way through them as things come up? So all these things, the, the language that we're using, how we're conveying it to our leaders, how they're then conveying it to their teams, you know, making sure that we're all speaking the same language so that we can move through these things together in a, in a better way. Language is absolutely critical here and alluding to this notion of work-life balance. It's, it's funny, you know, before I wrote my book on the topic of balance, I'd talk to leaders who would be like, oh yeah, we're implementing new work-life balance programs. We put a gym in our facility <laughs> or we, we have on-site daycare. I'm like, that's great. For some of the people who like to exercise or have children, now they have an excuse to stay at work longer. That's good. <laughs> we're, yeah. And I say to leaders, relieve yourself of the pressure of solving this problem yeah. for people. But give a platform to have this discussion and to empower individuals to be better at solving this problem. When it comes to language, uh, I dismiss the term work-life balance in my book. This language is part of the problem because last I checked, work is part of my life. Mm -hmm. It's not somehow that there's work and then there's this equivalent to everything else. That's part of the problem. That was part of the problem for me. Yeah. And part of the problem for me in, I didn't come from the humanitarian fields that we would traditionally describe as, as you come from and describe in your book. I'm very service oriented and, you know, I struggled. I like to say I was a zombie in the workforce and life. I'm on a mission to rid the world of zombies and workforce and life. <laughs> in my book, I talk about work life or life balance instead of work life balance. I call it life balance and it's a tension to manage. It's not a problem to solve. As you allude to, there will be seasons of life that require more focus. But I think if we just acknowledge that there's something called life balance, not somehow work is counter to it. I used to show up at work as work Steve, and then I'd go home and be family Steve, and then I'd be a different Steve with my friends and a different Steve at my church. Now I've just learned there's one Steve. There's one Steve, and I, and I authentically show up. And I think this is where you're getting foundationally in your book about this wholeness about recognizing that we're all human and at times we may be broken and that that's going to impact all aspects of our life and organizations that understand that and can promote a culture that empowers people to manage life balance, however they define that for themselves, mm -hmm. is going to lead to healthier, better outcomes for the individual and for the organization. 
and we take that incredibly seriously at Seek, which I'm happy to share some examples as it ties to kind of intentional culture. So one of the things we, we do with organizations when it comes to culture, and I'm reading your organizational manifesto, I'm like, yeah, we're in alignment. <laughs> we challenge organizations who, organizations may say, oh yeah, we value balance or we value respect. I'll walk into the office and see the poster on the wall and says, here's our core values. We value respect. I say, great. What does that mean in application? Mm -hmm. Does that mean when you tell me to do something, I salute and go about my job? Or does respect mean that we can have a healthy conversation and sh openly share with each other about circumstances? What is it? Let's be clear about the application. At Seek, we have a core value of integrity. Lots of companies claim integrity. I typically would say that's a right to play value if you're speaking of integrity purely from honesty and ethics. But we define integrity far more broadly. It's derived from the word integer. It's one, it's mm -hmm. whole. Are you whole? We have behavior statements that reinforce that value to honor our wholeness, to honor authenticity. And so we, actually have retrospectives where we talk about, are we doing that well? Now, behavior statements can be subjective in their application, just like a value itself can be subjective in its application. So we get really specific. I mentioned this earlier. What are things that we can do on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis that as a platform from our organization can empower each of our employees to honor their wholeness? An example of that is on a weekly basis, we have what we call analog time. This is a one to two hour window that every one of us blocks off on our calendar where, no offense, I turn off this computer, I shut down the phone, and we call it, we say we disconnect to reconnect. Oh, I like that. This is a way to just promote our wellness. And some of us spend that time in prayer meditation. Some of us spend that time exercising. Some of us just go out in nature. Someone may choose to read a book. But we're not dictating how that's done. We're providing a platform that promotes the wholeness, the wellness of each and every one of us. That's just one example of many ways that we try to get really intentional about not having the problem solved, but empowering our employees with some resources and some tools and some guidance that may help them. And by the way, we make Make no mistakes about it. We're striving for business results. Yeah, yeah. But we believe that is really good business. And that empowers us to be better, to be whole. We're in it for the long game, not the short game. Yeah. I love everything about what you just said. And there were so many things that you said. You know, and just this foundational question of are you whole, right? Like, if that's kind of what we're using as the benchmark, it makes it so much easier than, you know, to look at like, okay, what do we need to make that happen? And so I really, really appreciate that. And the other part of this that, you know, what's coming up for me as you're talking is that Seek is in the business of supporting other organizations to do this. And you're modeling what that looks like, right? In the same way, when I think about 
kind of the humanitarian sector. And I define it very broadly in the book, right? As anyone, any organization that's working to alleviate pain and suffering in the world. So it covers a lot of different sectors. But it's interesting that that ethos of of service and caring, if it's not also extended to the staff that's doing it, it becomes problematic. And so there's an opportunity there, right, for organizations. And going back to this idea of values, right, like working with organizations, that's something we encounter all the time is every organization has its core values. But to your point, are you living into those values? And what does that actually mean in action? And so these are opportunities for organizations to actually start living into some of those values and putting, you know, their staff's needs or make it, or prioritizing them, I suppose, is, is a better way to say that. I think, you know, that's the other piece of this, right, is it's the long game and it's an investment, right? It's an investment in time. Yeah. It's an investment in resources to care for our staff. But here's what I do know. The amount of money we spend to train people when they onboard and before I left, like the amount of attrition that we had and people leaving with maybe a year under their belts, if that, and then now the cost of recruiting, the cost of training, the cost of onboarding, the cost of all of that, and not to mention that you're not creating any institutional knowledge, or if you're not retaining employees, you're losing institutional knowledge. Like all of these things have a tangible cost. And so I would love for <laughs> workforce health and well-being to be its own reason, that it's just the right thing to do. Because again, we are all human. We're trying to help others. Um, we should be doing this. But for all the organizations that need a bottom line reason, <laughs> so there's a lot of good ones because all these things have costs, even though you may not see them right away. Um, over time, they are building up and they are impacting your organization's ability to be effective in the work that they're doing, or the work that you're doing. You're on to something that we, we care deeply about at Seek. It's this cost-benefit analysis of we never wanted to be the the organization doing organizational development, training, coaching, that is all about just kumbaya. Let's just make everybody happy. That's good if you can get that, but that's, we always want to connect it to business results. And there is a business case. And we're striving to make that business case. And you're making that business case in your book that this is good business. Now, if you're purely in the short game, that, hey, we just have to produce X number of widgets so the, the shareholders are happy on the quarterly report, that can be problematic because it leads to bad decision-making that's not in the best interest of the long-term. No. I mean, I think everybody would acknowledge engagement matters. Having an engaged workforce matters. And there's tons of research about engagement and Good boss, bad boss, uh, perks, pay, different things that can contribute, equipment, whatever. We say the fundamental root cause of disengagement in any organization is hypocrisy. Yes. 
we define that as a state where your professed values differ from demonstrated behaviors. And so the worst thing an organization can do is say, we genuinely care about your wholeness and your well-being. We'll see you every Saturday for the next 12 weeks. How are you being consistent in the application of professed values? And if you genuinely say that we, we care about our people, how can you get creative about demonstrating that and recognizing, again, it's a tension to manage because if you just go all the way like, oh, we're just going to spend time and get to know each other and do team building activities and everything. I'm not arguing for that, but there's a balance to be achieved and there's leadership discipline that can promote that and get the business results. And if you do these things, you've alluded to, yes, engagement, people want to come work for you, people will stay in your organization, ultimately productivity will improve and increase. I believe there is a case for that. How we make that case, we got to do a better job in some cases for it. But we also have to acknowledge like it's attention. And yeah. We got to have both. We got to be able to demonstrate, yes, we're achieving results. The interesting thing that I loved about your book is just this notion of humanitarians, which really comes back to the the age old adage of put your oxygen mask on first. Like yep. you yep. came from a place that, and we see this, we have a lot of clients in the healthcare space who on the heels of COVID were just completely burnt out. And yep. how do they take care of themselves? and most people know Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly successful people. Well, the seventh, what he calls the most important habit is to sharpen the saw. You know what that means? That's a metaphor. The lumberjack, if he just keeps grinding away, his productivity is going to drop. Mm -hmm. When do you pause? When do you rest? When do you sharpen the saw? That is good business. And instilling that philosophy, that's our analog time. That's one example of it. Yeah. Vacations, other things can contribute. But when do you just, especially as you're talking about knowledge workers, when throughout your day do you have those pauses? And I think you speak to this in your book. It's not just about the week, you know, the annual vacation. How do you just build restorative practices and recognize and center yourself and build mindfulness? These are things that can. And should benefit not just the individual, but the business. Yeah, and I think that's a great segue, right? That when we think about it's uh, commitment three for organizations is supporting rest and recovery. And it's really this idea of how do we, you know, acknowledge that staff health and well-being, it's bigger than any single program or initiative. It is that ongoing care that has to exist and you know and how do we create conditions for work and recovery to kind of coexist in that space it's a hard one because i mean it's not hard like i think that there's some really kind of common sense things that we can be doing but it's hard again because there's so much unlearning and deconditioning that has to happen not just like at the organizational level, but down to the individual level, because for many years, I, I felt a lot of guilt if I wasn't working 
especially when you're in the work that serves other human beings, like there's often kind of a, an immediacy of things that needs to be addressed. And so it's very challenging in these sectors to say, yeah, you know what, I'm going to stop. I'm going to take some time for myself. And so the guilt and the shame that comes with that is also something that we have to acknowledge and address and help people understand why those things are coming up. And this is where I do think the story healing circles are a great way to help address some of this. Because again, number one, it's not therapy. We're not asking to have therapy in the workplace. None of us are, at least I'm not licensed to do that. Most people in our workplaces aren't aren't set up to do that. But there is something to be said about gathering with other people and sharing what has come out of a particular experience. So for example, you know, when I used to go overseas and interview refugees, it would have been so helpful to come back from those trips and sit with other members of the team to talk about what our experience was. You know, what came out of this? What did you feel? What was coming up for you as you did the work? Because when I started experiencing vicarious trauma, uh, later on when I started experiencing moral injury, there was such a feeling of, oh, there's something wrong with me and I need to take care of this myself. Again, those feelings of shame of, you know, I'm not strong. Am I not strong enough? Like what's wrong with me? And so we isolate ourselves and we just keep pushing and we don't tell people, you know, like, hey, I think something's not right. And so this is the thing, like, I want to help organizations really create those conditions where we start to normalize the language around this. You know, these are occupational traumas. They are a very real part of doing this work. And they're the very human part of doing this work. And it doesn't make us weak. It doesn't make us, you know, anything. But how we react is very much going to depend on, again, like, you know, we go through the book, right? You know, what are the stories that shaped us? What are our surviving stories? And so based on all of those things, they all tie together to determine you and I could both go on a trip like this to do this work. And I might react one way and you might react in a completely different way, right? And because we're bringing so many different things to it. And so this is where I think there's a real opportunity with um, story healing in the workplace and just taking, again, that investment of taking an hour after, you know, a two-month deployment or whatever, or some, you know, if there's like a big incident that happened at work, but taking that time to let people come together and share that experience, not only, you know, helps with the social connection, alleviates the isolation and loneliness that can sometimes come when we're um, in that space, but also helps to cultivate that sense of trust and psychological safety that people are really craving in their workplaces. Yeah. I want to go back to, you had mentioned kind of this notion of guilt and shame, and I'll make a confession, if you will, or, uh, you know, I humbly say this, like, I sense in you and reading your story, it's kind of like there's always another mouth to feed. There's always another person to serve. You're working in the world of refugees who experience horrific circumstances. 
And I imagine there's probably, well, I can't hit the pause. I have to be strong. Humbly, I say, my story's different. I mean, I was in an environment, I, I tell people I'm a recovering people pleaser. <laughs> my guilt and shame wasn't going to have life-altering impacts. My guilt and shame was, oh, what if they don't like me? What if, oh, I don't want to disappoint my boss, my client, my colleague. I'm just going to do more. I had an inability to say no. The implications of that were more self-centered than other-centered. So humbly and respectfully, I just honor kind of that lesson that you taught me from your book, presenting all this from a humanitarian perspective. But it's still similar. Like I can relate to this notion of guilt and shame or this pressure to do more, do more, do more. And I love your concept, um, a new idea that honestly I haven't considered in some of the culture work that we're doing with organizations. We do emphasize a lot of storytelling, but this is far more kind of on a personal level and sharing. And it's therapeutic. I know it's therapeutic for me. Writing my book was therapeutic, sharing my strengths, my weaknesses, my vulnerabilities, it was all therapeutic. I'm curious from your own perspective, because you have an amazing, compelling story that you openly share. How was that for you? How was that experience? Was that therapeutic for you in some way? Which I think, you know, I just connect that back to this idea of story. And I know you're not suggesting you get into a story group and share your your entire story, your book, you have so many individual stories, but some of the trauma from work experiences can be powerful. But yeah, I'm curious how this worked for you, just writing this book and the impact that it had had on you. And I see you smiling as I asked the question. I can imagine it was impactful. Yeah, for sure. It was so incredibly healing. I didn't even realize, you know, I, I talk about this at some point. I can't remember if it's in the introduction or my initial goal was, oh, I'm going to write this kind of, you know, leadership book. And and as I started writing, I was like, oh, I, I need to talk about this thing. I need to talk about this thing. And it evolved into this more of like a memoir format. And there was just so much healing I needed to do not just professionally, I mean, certainly professionally, but personally, things that I've gone through in my life. And you're right, there's such a power in writing down. And that's a lot of what I'm going to be offering in the coming year is more opportunities for these kind of writing programs to help people work through their story. But we know that as human beings, we're inherently connected to storytelling, right? It's a survival, like in what we call evolutionary survival mechanism. We needed stories to help us survive like our prehistoric ancestors, things like that. And so that's still very much within us. And so there's a real power in actually being able to share our stories with others. And to your point, yeah, especially in the workplace, we're not talking about like, let's get into the, the really deep, gritty things that happened in our childhoods. And that's, that's not what we're talking about. But we can start to look, we can peel back some layers, though, to say, huh, all right. You know, when I'm in these situations in the workplace, my automatic reaction is this when I deal with 
this kind of a, a stressful situation. Where's that coming from? We can start to look at like, what's the shaping story behind that? Like, what led you to have that survival reaction? Because all of this stress and trauma that we experience, like, it's a manifestation of our, our nervous system, right? Like our nervous system is reacting because it believes that it needs to protect us. And so the reality is when that happens, we have so many stress hormones going through the body and the brain doesn't understand the difference between, you know, a real threat versus a perceived threat versus, you know, like some of just like the things that happen in our day-to-day -day life at work. And so how do we start to recognize and help to calm our brain and our nervous system to say like, no, 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 actually, I'm okay. This is fine. So that we can get into that place of rest and digest. And we can actually take care of our body in a better way, our body and our minds, really. And so this is where like, I think the story healing, especially in conjunction with this idea of supporting rest and recovery, you know, helping people understand how to reset their nervous systems in real time. So again, story healing can be that. You do a three-minute story circle. You can do these kind of three-minute story circles in a meeting, for example. So at the beginning, you take three minutes. People divide up into groups of two or three. You give them a prompt about something. And it's just a way, even just that act of sharing what, you know, it could be something as simple as, you know, the best part of my weekend was. It just helps to convey that message to the nervous system that, oh, you know what? It's actually okay. Things are okay, like in this moment. And it just helps to reset in that moment. So there's like, there's so many things like that that we can be doing to help people. I love all that. And there's so much we can unpack there. It just got me thinking. I mean, we talk about kind of the reactions that happen in workplace settings. And so many times some of the coaching support that I deal with with people is just kind of, it's storytelling in our head. It's A happens, I take B response and, and then C outcome occurs. And then there's drama and there's some sort of problem. And it's just being able to kind of look back, think, reflect upon the story and the choices that we have and the reactions that we have as you're talking about storytelling as well, we are such a product of what we take in. Yes. And what we take in, I always say, we're like a sponge. And when pressure is applied, it will come out. And so I think of this in terms of reading your book, if there's been a history of trauma, you know, and we absorb all that, we just keep taking it in and taking it in, eventually pressure will be applied and something's going to come out. And so I think of storytelling in terms of that's a useful and productive way to release some of that pressure. It gets it out. I'm not a therapist or a psychologist, but I imagine that's kind of at the root of some of the work that would be done in such a space. But, and you're not asking leaders, you're not asking me as a leader in my organization to be a therapist or a psychologist. Exactly. You're just asking for a platform to say, this is a safe space. This is a safe space. We can have a discussion. You can share some of your experiences here at work. And sometimes it can be lighthearted. Sometimes it may not. But just creating that space where we can have these discussions and people, again, go back to this. You can be human. You can be authentic. You can be whole. You can be vulnerable, sharing 
within the boundaries that you set for yourself. I think that's just healthy, good business. And yeah, I think these story circles is something that I'm probably going to take away from your book as a suggested ritual for consideration and intentional culture plans within my own organization and those that aspire to do what we're talking about here. That's great. I'm glad to hear that. And I just want to say one thing. You know, in the book, we talk about brave spaces rather than safe spaces. And the difference being that, especially in the context of equity, inclusion, belonging, for people of color, sometimes there is no such thing as a safe space. And so we talk about brave spaces, which kind of acknowledges that, again, our humanity and that we all bring these kinds of wounds and scars with us. And so we're imperfect. We are probably going to make mistakes, say the wrong thing. But when we do, you know, we're willing to own them and work to repair them um, and work to repair any hurt and damage. And so I like to emphasize that difference because, again, going back to language, right? I think that that's a really important thing. And so there's a lot of a lot of really good stuff to do, a lot of work to do in these organizations. And I just look forward to being able to help as much as possible and ideally stop normalizing burnout, stop normalizing working the way that we've been conditioned to work and actually you know, making it okay to rest and making it okay to take that time to care for ourselves. Because like you said, or, you know, as we know, this idea of the oxygen mask, and we do want to, most of us who go into these lines of work, we do so because we are passionate about it. We're compelled by something. Sometimes we don't know why, but there's a real sense of purpose that goes into this work. And it's very, very hard when you start to feel disconnected from that purpose or you just can't do the work because you're exhausted. And so the more that we start to normalize these things, the more that we start to take care of ourselves and make it okay to take care of ourselves. And the more that organizations support us in doing that, the better we're going to be able to continue serving the world Especially, I feel like the world needs people to do these kinds of service more and more every single day. Well, again, and I know you speak in your manifesto, I think about this connection to purpose, which talk about how hypocrisy can destroy engagement. But that connection to purpose is what really inspires engagement. But those like yourself who are so connected to purpose may be more at risk for some of the things we're talking about because how much you care. And that's where you just have to give yourself grace, I think, and give myself grace and, you know, that, okay, it is recognizing it is good business that I first have to take care of myself. My mother used to say, don't light candles in far off places when there's darkness in your own home. So, we have to kind of build that capacity within ourselves and recognize that every now and then we have to pause, rest, recover, and go back out there and keep serving the world. That's what you're doing. And I'm so, so 
blown away by your book, thank you, by your thank story, you. by the impact that you have had and continue to have. So just honored to be here with you. I appreciate that. As we close out, I'd like to ask you one final question, which is actually in the container of this brave space that we've created together. What does service without self-sacrifice mean to you? Such a thoughtful question. And we, we talk a little bit about trust in organizations and do a lot of work and trust with organizations. And I contend that the most important factor in building trust is whether someone is self-centered or other-centered. It's interesting because your question kind of poses, there's this tension between service of other without self-sacrifice. A lot of times serving others can contribute to our own well-being. So we're talking about scenarios where it can be detrimental because it's just overwhelming and there's trauma with respect to that. But when I serve others, I feel I'm on a I'm doing good. I'm connected to my mission and my purpose, which you know, I'm on a mission and purpose to rid the world of zombies in the workforce and life. Yeah. When I'm doing that too much, I'm at risk of being coming one of them and needing my own support and services. So service without sacrifice is all about balance. Yeah. What does that mean to me? It's I am at peace that I've established routines in my life that feed my capacity to serve others. And those are mental, physical, spiritual routines that I do on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. And so if I were to say, what does service without self-sacrifice look like to me? And, and believe me, I don't have this perfected, but I'm far better than I was <laughs> previously. It's all about putting routines that build my production capacity. My capacity to serve others is dictated by how much I invest in myself. That's how much I invest in good relationships with my wife and my children and my family, how much I invest in my relationship, whatever my or your faith tradition may be, how I'm investing in my own health and well-being. Because if I'm not doing those things, I'm short-sighted and my capacity to serve will dissipate over time. I love that. I love that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today and for all the amazing work that you and Seek are doing to create happy and healthy cultures across sectors. And we will definitely include some links in the show notes where people can connect with you, with Seek, and also purchase your book. And to all those who are listening, This is your weekly reminder that at the heart of the word humanitarian is human, and we can choose to serve others without sacrificing our own health, well-being, and humanity in the process. So thank you so much, and thank you so much for your service. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Service Without Sacrifice. If we want to put the human back into humanitarian work, we have to get this message in front of as many people as possible. And this, my friends, depends a lot on word of mouth. 
So if you enjoy these conversations and find them to be valuable, please like, subscribe, and review Service Without Sacrifice on your favorite podcasting platform. And share it with others who might benefit. And producing this show is a labor of love. Your support will help me to continue creating new content and sharing stories of hope, healing, and human-centered leadership for years to come. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm working to build a community with my newsletter and content hub, Dear Humanitarian. You can find out more about my writing, the book, our online story healing community called The Hummingbird Circle, as well as how to work with me over at rootsinthecloud.com. And I'd like to take a moment here to acknowledge how grateful I am to live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Dogue and Piscataway tribes. And I'd also like to take a moment to thank the team over at One Stone Creative for editing and producing this series. And finally, I'd like to thank you so much for your support. And most of all, thank you for your service.